Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Neil Lancaster. Neil was born in Liverpool but grew up in Kent, leaving age 17 where he served for six years in the military police with the RAF. He left the Metropolitan Police in 2015, where he served for over 25 years, predominantly as a detective, leading and conducting investigations into some of the most serious criminals across the UK and beyond. Neil acted as a surveillance and covert policing specialist, using all types of techniques to arrest and prosecute drug dealers, human traffickers, fraudsters and murderers. And during his career, he successfully prosecuted several wealthy and corrupt members of the legal profession who were involved in organised immigration crime. Those prosecutions led to jail sentences, multi-million pound asset confiscations and disbarments. Since retiring from the Metropolitan Police, Neil has relocated to the Scottish Highlands with his wife and son, but he now writes crime thriller books with three published thrillers in the Tom Novak series. Neil, welcome to Read All About It podcast. Nice to meet you. Obviously, a, a very uh, high-pressure, colourful career before you even uh, change careers and change locations to get involved in writing. Was that always the plan eventually? Because it is such a departure from what you were doing for many, many years with the police. It wasn't a plan at all. I say I always wanted to be a cop. I, even when I joined the military, I knew I was doing it because I just wanted to do something for a few years before I joined the police. And I had a great time in the police, but I did my time, you know, and I worked in some really interesting areas and got involved in some really interesting types of work. Um, but when the time came for me to go, I knew I wanted to go. We'd been coming up to the Highlands of Scotland for a long time, got family up here and sort of fallen in love with it. So when the opportunity came for us to relocate and move to the Black Isle, um, we took it. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just thought, well, you know, I'll see what happens. You know, I'll, I'm happy to just take it easy for a bit and see what comes next. And I sort of messed around with a little bit of private work, which wasn't up to much. And I'd always been a, a really enthusiastic reader ever since being a kid. Uh, when all my mates were reading The Beano, I was reading novels. I, mean, I read The Beano as well. And I'd read it today if I had it. But uh, and so I thought I just thought I had time on my hands because it wasn't a great deal. Of work. And I thought yeah, I'll just give it a try. And literally, with no more thought than that, I opened a laptop and started typing. I mean, that's a big leap of faith, I suppose, for anyone, you know, when you first start, as you say, if, you know, reading's one thing, but then to take that next step and to, to commit yeah, your thoughts or your ideas onto paper, onto laptop, and were you surprised at how that went? Or was it just something that you just, once you started, you thought, I'm loving this? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, I, I hadn't given it a great deal of thought. It's not like I had this burning desire of a story to tell. One of the last cases I did, which is part of the introduction with the corrupt members of the legal profession, was against a, a solicitor we suspected was heavily corrupt and organising, part of organising sham marriages for enormous amounts of money to allow foreign nationals who shouldn't be in the UK to remain in the UK. Females were being trafficked over from the Czech Republic in order to facilitate this, you know, kept in really horrible conditions. A lot of them were forced to become prostitutes uh, and things like that. It was a long-running three-year investigation that was, in the end, very successful. 
but that sort of gave me the idea. I thought, oh, I quite like, you know, it's horrible, corrupt solicitor. There's, there's, some, there's a story to tell in that. So that was my start point, was the influence of that. Now, obviously, it went way off script, the first Tom Novak series. So, I mean, I thought up this character, I wanted him to be interesting. And so I thought, well, let's, let's make him a refugee. So I thought, well, let's make him a refugee from the Balkan conflict, because that timeline-wise would be appropriate, because that would put him, you know, in about his early, late 30s, something like that. So I thought, well, that's an interesting place to start. And let's have him brought up with, you know, with, with an, he, he witnessed some terrible things in his childhood. His father was murdered. His, his mother then died shortly after they came to the UK. And so I thought there was the fundamentals of the story. I had the basic, basic storyline where we started, which was the corrupt solicitor and the, the trafficking gang from Bosnia. And I had this character, Tom Novak, who I was really interested in. And it just started there. So I had the character. I had the very start. And then we'd see where we went from there. And I literally did that. I didn't particularly plan the book. There was no spreadsheets. There was no mind maps. There was just what I had in my head. And I just started writing and I sort of surprised how easily and quickly the words went down. So that's that's how it started. And I actually found myself really enjoying it early on. Because there's three books in the, the Tom Novak, Novak series. It's Going Dark, Going Rogue and Going Back. And obviously, you know, for anybody who writes crime novels or thriller novels, you're, you're wanting people to engage with the character because then you can develop it over book two, book three or whatever. But going back to that first book when you, at some point, was it your wife that you let her read it first or, or who had been the first person that you, that you showed your writing to? I finished the book and I thought, I you, is this any good? And, you know, because you don't really know. So my wife read it and said, oh, I really like it. It's really good. And then I showed it to someone else, a, a friend of my wife's who's, you know, who's pretty good as a, a, a proofreader. And she sort of picked the bones out of it and got most of the, you know, the worst of the mistakes out of it. And then I thought, well, happy days, I'll start submitting it to publishers. And of course, they all just said no, or, or agents, and, or they just ignored me, or they just said no. Quite rightly, the book wasn't ready. I made contact with a, a local writer up in, in Venice, a wonderful lady called Margaret Kirk. I think she's three books out now with Orion for her Inverness-based detective series. And she very kindly read it for me, and she was really honest. And she said, look, it's a good story. The character's interesting, but it's not ready. You need to do more work. And she gave me a load of pointers and really helped me out with it. I, uh, there's another writer who lives close to me, a guy called Mike Walters, who's got written a lot of crime books. And he read it after all the corrections I made. And he said, I really like this, Neil. This is really good. You should really submit this. And so I did that. And I got a little bit of help from an editor, a lovely, lovely lady called Emma Mitchell. And we whipped it into shape. And I started submitting again. And I got a number of offers quite quickly. Um, and then it was uh, the first one was published. And it went really well. And, it, you know, got really well received. So it encouraged me to write some more. So I think the thing, you know, for anybody who's listening, who are, who's actually, you know, maybe at the start of their writing career, because there's an element of perseverance as well that, as you say, you've got basis of a, a good story and a, and a really interesting character, but you have to persevere even if initially you get rejection. But you also need somebody with that critical eye to say, do this, do that, do this, and then just say, mould it into shape. But don't give up because if, if you believe what you're writing, then at some point you've got to hope that something clicks into place fundamentally, the first thing to accept if you want to be a writer is that people are going to say no, people won't want it. Now, there can be a multitude of reasons for that. It could be that, you know, the book's not good enough. That is a a significant possibility. It could be that it's just not right for that particular agent. You know, that particular agent is one person sat at a desk reading a book. Now, they can say no for all sorts of reasons. You know, it could be that it just doesn't resonate with them. It could be that they're 
already have a couple of clients with a very similar hook to yourself and it's just not right for them. So the fact that the simple takeouts for me are make it as good as you possibly can make it. Get help, but don't get help from your mum. Don't get help from your wife. Yeah, great. Let them read it. But they start out wanting to like it. They start out with the intention that they're going to love this because, of course, they love you. So they, they're going to love anything you do. You need a critical eye. You need somebody who's brave enough to say to you that this isn't good enough. You're not working hard enough on this. You need to tidy it up here and to give you positive feedback. I'd also say if you can afford it, you can pay for assessments. Now, it might, you know, it might not need the whole thing to be done, you, but for sort of a reasonable amount of money, you can pay someone with, inside, with expertise to look at your submission package that would go to an editor or would go to an agent, and, you know, which is normally you know, the equivalent of three chapters. There's a, a letter and there's a synopsis. And they can then give you their feedback, really honest feedback. But you've got to persist. There's not many people get accepted by the first time they submit. It just doesn't yeah. happen. Everyone gets rejected. And in terms of, as I mentioned, there's three books already in the series. I think there's also a short story as well. And now that you've kind of, you've got that character going established, you've got that readership that wants to know what's going to happen next. Do you have ideas for the next book and the next book after that that are always working away? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the three Novak books came pretty easily. Yes, you know, there's always ups and downs. But then I, I got to the point that I'd finished the third Novak and it was going through all the editing process, ready for publication. And I thought, what am I going to do now? And I had a, a sudden urge to write something new. So a new concept came to me. It came to me from a description of a graveyard that someone gave me last Christmas. This old guy, is an, and he's a cop. He used to be a cop in Scotland back in the 60s. And he described going to a graveyard in this wild part of Caithness and scraping the moss off this grave, doing some genealogy, trying to find out about his wife's family. And he found a grave that simply said on it, this grave never to be opened. And I thought, oh man, that's just cool, you know? It's creepy, it's cool, and it's foreboding, and you want to know more straight away. And so I couldn't get that idea out of my head. So I created a new character, and I created, created a new, and I wrote a new book, a completely new book. Now that's out in the wilderness at the moment, searching for a home, and hopefully that will be seeing the light of day at some point in the future. So, you know, from three books with Novak, they're going really well at the moment. I decided to write something completely different. Now, I'd like to go back to Novak because it's really good fun to write. But I'm also excited about this new project. So, you know, I'm always looking for the next thing and the next big idea, which I think that's, many of us are. Yeah, I mean, that's the exciting thing sometimes, I think. Quite often you'll see interviews with writers and one of the questions that invariably asked is, where do you get your ideas from? And as you say, sometimes, sometimes it could be something that you've experienced sometimes can be a big event but you know I think any writer that's told that story without a grave would immediately start thinking there's something here there's something here I mean that's that's quite an exciting moment isn't it hugely I mean this it's this thing of out of nowhere I was just sat in a house with somebody having a glass of wine and he told me this story and I just went there's a book I can write a book from that I mean the book could go a thousand ways it's just a way of grabbing your attention. Now, it could be, you know, it could be a pandemic thing. Not that I think anybody wants to read too much about pandemics at the moment. It could be old ancient history. I mean, there's so many options that you could write from that book. It could be supernatural. That's not me. It's a thriller. I'll always be, a, I think, a thriller or a crime writer because, you know, I think with my background, that's perhaps what people are going to expect from me. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's exciting. Well, certainly, fingers crossed that, that that book does find a home and uh, we can all find out what happens with that grave. I know. 
You you mentioned early on that obviously you'd always been a reader, you know, going back to childhood. So that, that kind of takes us to the kind of structure of the podcast. And I take you right back to your childhood to ask you what your favourite book from childhood is. And the book that you've chosen is a book called My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Darrell. What was it about that book that stuck with you? Well, my, my sisters are both a bit older than me. Now, when my older sisters were studying to do English literature, Gerald Durrell, My Family and Other Animals, was always on the syllabus for anyone's English literature. Now, I would have been, I don't know, probably about 10. And my mum said, I'd just been reading comics up till then, or whatever, you know, the Beano, the Dandy, etc. But my mum said to me, Neil, you really should read this. It's really lovely, this book. And it, it's so funny and really sort of enchanting. And yeah, at first I thought, oh, yeah, right, whatever. But I did pick it up. And I was absolutely captivated by it. It's just a beautiful book. And it struck me, I can remember the feeling as a kid when I opened the book and you read this story, Gerald Durrell, this is pre the Second World War. So in the 30s, they were living in the UK. And all of a sudden, his elder brother, Lawrence Durrell, himself a very celebrated novelist, quite a literary novelist, said, we should move to Corfu. And the whole family up sticks and moved to Corfu. I think they were quite wealthy. And it was just the story of this five-year sojourn in Corfu. And Gerald Durrell was obviously captivated and fascinated by all things natural history. I mean, he, he ended up owning a zoo in the Channel Islands. And it was the descriptions. It transported me. It made me realise what words could do and where words could take you. Because it took me from my home in Kent to Corfu, in that pre-war period and it was just enchanting what it could do it was so beautifully written the descriptions of the scenery of the sea of the locals and how they embedded themselves with with the locals learning the language and becoming part of this greek community i mean it's there's been they've adapted it for television on a couple of occasions and they've never nailed it they've never got close as far as i'm concerned to the book and it just gives me a warm feeling this book is is of a a more innocent age and and this childhood growing up with no television I don't think even any electricity half the time in this paradise and just immersing himself in by with the wildlife and everything just a magical book and it showed me that what words could do and I really never looked back from there so that is what kicked it off was was my mother giving me the copy of that my family and other animals i then went i read it till it fell to pieces i read it and i reread it and i reread it until it fell to pieces i then went and read some of the follow-up books which never quite hit the same heights they were good but nothing gripped me like my family and other animals and it led me to read further and read wider so that that would be the book that really had the biggest impact on me as a child I wonder as well, again, when I was just having a wee look at about the book before we started recording, and I think when, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was round about the same age as you would have been when you were reading it, when he started. That Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that kind of helped you relate to him, because effectively it's somebody your age that's experiencing something, you know, you're looking through the same experience from somebody's eyes, but the same age as you. It was, and Durrell's writing, where it, it's beautiful, but it's simple. It's a clarity of words. There are no wasted words. You know, he does put a lot of effort into descriptions, into describing, you know, the sea and, and the fauna and the fish and, and everything. It is like seeing it through a child's eyes. So that sense of wonder was like seeing it through a child's eyes. And it really resonated with me as a 10, 11 year old. 
you know, I just wanted to be him. I wanted to be in Corfu and it, it never left me. And it still gives me this, this warm feeling. And it reminds me of my mum as well, which is obviously brilliant. But it's just a, a super book. It's a beautiful book. And I really advise anyone to read it. And if you've got younger children, you know, it, and it's hard to get kids to read now because there's so many other distractions. But of course, this is the 1970s. You know, there wasn't anything else to do. There was no telly on, was there? You know, there was a bit of, what, telly for about an hour or two a day. But other than that, there wasn't anything to do. If it was raining, what did you do? You know, as now there's all these distractions. But it, to me, it's an innocent hark back to, to, to a more gentle age despite it being pre-war i mean the world was about to descend into chaos uh for six years but this just felt so innocent and yet so beautiful and so captivating i, I absolutely love it i have such warm feelings for the book Do you know like most you know it's quite interesting there's always most readers they can pinpoint a book that changes how as you, you mentioned already how you you look at words and then how you look at books and i wonder as well that you know your mum chooses that you know she's obviously seen something in that book that she thinks is going to resonate with you it's like you know, very simple but very clever and as you said sets you off on this journey and this lifelong journey of reading yeah absolutely and it, it was it was just like a, a damascene moment that i realized what words could do and how words could make you feel like you know how simple words on a you know ink on a page could make me burst out laughing because they're very funny at times how it could make you sad you know uh, almost heartbroken at times how it could make you sort of frightened for him and worry about him and it was just brilliant and, and the interactions with his family because his family were really eccentric you know larry his elder brother this very literary serious character very sarcastic and then his his sister margot who was obsessed with how she looked with dieting and fashion and mum was a bit sort of vague but very much in charge of the family and uh, leslie his other brother who was all into shooting all the wildlife and sailing and I, I, I can picture it all now. I, I could quote chapters of it. I could quote large tracks of the book is how many times I read it and how much it means to me. So many books are just forgettable, even though they're good, you enjoy them. It's just a disposable item. It's like a, a Netflix documentary or a, a Netflix series. You read it, you enjoy it, you forget about it. Some books you don't. And I will never forget my family and other animals because it, it just means a lot to me. And you mentioned how you read it until basically the book was falling apart. Is it? Is it a book, obviously you say, you know, you can still remember large tracks of it now. Is it a book that you've returned to in adulthood? I haven't returned to it for a long time. Um, I haven't actually even got a copy of it because it literally fell to bits. Now, there is another, I, I had a hardback copy of it, but for the life of me, I can't find it. Now, it's somewhere in the house and I've moved several times since I had that because my parents bought it for me years ago. It's somewhere, probably, in the house, but I can't find it for the life of me. And I've been searching for it since becoming a writer because it is part of the journey, you know, and um, I can't find it for the life of me. So I should get myself another copy of it. And is it something that you would want to pass on as well? Is that kind of legacy from you to, to your? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love my kids to read it, but I might be, I might, I might be pushing at a closed door there. Yeah, I, I, I don't see that happening. Maybe it was the right time and the right place that book maybe that it's time has passed for people of that generation yeah. but you never know you never know i i mean i think it's brilliant but i think you know with my 10 year old boy now i think if i tried to get him to read it he, he might look at me as if i was crazy you obviously you that kind of sets you off in the lifelong journey of reading so if i can take you on in the next question in the podcast which is more the kind of teenage formative years book and the book that you've chosen is a book called running blind by desmond bagley I am a massive, massive fan of Desmond Bagley. 
to me, we had the big thriller writers of the 1970s, you know, Alistair MacLean, Len Dayton, Hammond Innes, Dick Francis. They're all brilliant. I think they're just terrific. And I don't know that the equivalent exists at the moment. There are some amazing authors out there, thriller authors, but the desire is out there now is psychological thrillers as opposed to these action thrillers of the 1970s. Now, to me, uh, Desmond Bagley was the best of them all. The journey towards this book, I do have a copy of this one, which I actually got very recently because, again, the same thing happened. I read it so many times it fell to bits. When I became a writer and I started thinking about my influences, this book really occurred to me. Now, this was the first one I read of his, Running Blind. Now, it arose out of a television programme. I'd have been, I think, probably about 12 at the time. And there was a TV adaptation of Running Blind on ITV, I think. And I sat and watched it with my parents. It was just gripping. And I thought, wow, this is really good. And it's a story of a lapsed agent from the security services in Great Britain who's living in isolation in the Scottish Highlands when he's forced back to do what, on the face of it, seems like a simple task for his old paymasters in British intelligence. Now, of course, all is not what it seems. He has to go to Iceland to, on the face of it, deliver a package. And it all goes horribly wrong. And he ends up in this one man and his girlfriend against not only the Russians, but elements of the British Secret Service and the American Secret Service. Now, this was written in 1970, this book. Now, there's no internet then. You wanted to research Iceland. You probably needed to go there. And the level of research and detail in Iceland, into the, into the, the geography of Iceland, into some of the features of Iceland, And Bagley was just amazing. He had the most incredible way with words. Very simple, not massive, great, long, rambling descriptions. It was very punchy. You know, they're not long books. They're simply written, but to me, stunningly written. I've got got to read you the opening line from this book, because I think it's just, I don't see how you can't want to finish this book. This is the first opening line of this book. To be encumbered with a corpse is to be in a difficult position especially when the corpse is without benefit of a death certificate. True, any doctor, even one just hatched from medical school, would have been able to diagnose the cause of death. The man had died of heart failure, or what the medical boys pompously called cardiac arrest. The proximate cause of his pumper having stopped pumping was that someone had slid a sharp sliver of steel between his ribs, just far enough to penetrate the great muscle of the heart and to cause serious an irreversible leakage of blood, so that it had stopped beating. Cardiac arrest, as I said. I wasn't too anxious to find a doctor, because the knife was mine, and the hilt had been in my hand when the point pricked out his life. Now, that, to me, is a killer opening to a book. You can't help but think, whoa, what's next? How's he got into this situation? And it is an absolutely gripping, fast-moving book, with a character you root for all the way through. Again, a fairly straightforward guy. He's an ex-agent, but he's got some serious demons from things that happened when he was working against the Russians a number of years before. And it's a tale of corruption, of double dealing, of double agents, of triple agents. It's just amazing. Again, I read it till it fell to pieces as a a sort of a 12, 13-year-old, and it stuck with me. When I became a writer, the question you get asked all the time is, who were your influences? Who, were, you know, who, who influences you now with your writing? And I would come up with names, you know, mostly contemporary writers. And then it was somebody, a friend of mine, Denzel Myrick, who's a very successful author. He also, he read it and he said, your books take me back 
to the old writers of the 1970s. It feels like Bagley, like Alistair MacLean, like it's Lynn Dayton. And I thought, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. And I went back and I picked up Running Blind to put it on my, on my Kindle and I reread it and I thought, oh yeah, how I reveal what's going to happen next, the way I build, you know, try to build tension. This is the influence. And I have to go back and think, I wrote a book I wasn't necessarily expecting to write. I thought I'd write a police procedural, but because of my absence of any sort of plotting, it ended up being a thriller. And when I look back, the biggest influence to me was a book I hadn't actually thought of when thinking of influences, but it was somehow ingrained in me, having read it so many times in my formative years when, you know, obviously you're really malleable, it had this lasting impact on me. And I, I would now say that my biggest influence is Desmond Bagley. And I'm rereading all his backlists. I just love them. I just think they're brilliant. That's, that's really interesting. As, as you say, it's almost subliminal that you hadn't realised that whatever you were reading as a teenager is just embedded there. And it may never have come out unless you started writing, but as soon as you do, it's unearthed this, this influence. Uh, but it's also interesting that you think as well that those kind of some of those novelists that you mentioned were very, very big at that time. Do you think it's been the end, like, for example, the end of the Cold War that's kind of been forgotten about to an extent? I think they have. I, I think there's a will to reignite the genre of hard-nosed, fast-paced, high-octane action thrillers. I, I mean, the industry loves psychological thrillers at the moment. I love psychological thrillers. I really like psychological thrillers as well. But my heart is about fast-paced action thrillers. And there are some good authors writing them out there now. I'm currently reading Box 88 by Charles Cummings, which is, again, feels like a really old-school spy thriller, but with a big contemporary feel to it. Tony Kent, a friend of mine who is right, written a, a really great trilogy of fast-paced espionage thrillers, full-on. Adam Hamdy with his Black 13 series, his Pendulum series. I think there's a will for this to come back. I think people like reading these full-on fast-paced books, and I really hope that's going to continue, that people are going to continue to want to write and read thrillers like that. And I suppose the, what you would hope as well is the knock-on effect of that is then people might go back to people like Bagley and Alison McLean and others that, that may be the influence of the current writers and, and then see where that started or, or what the, the influences were. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, I, you read Running Blind, love it as I do, and yeah, it does feel dated in terms of weaponry, in, in terms of the fact that at one point they're in the middle of the, um, the outback, so to speak, in Iceland, travelling in their Land Rover, and they need to try and make contact with someone, and they use this complicated system using a radio telephone that's in the Land Rover. Now, of course, to anyone reading that today, anybody from the younger generation, that would be, what? What do you mean? You know, because, of course, we're all used to carrying these supercomputers in our pockets now that are also telephones. Whereas back then, if you were in the middle of nowhere, how do you contact anyone? So, you know, these old radio telephones and there is an element of it being dated. But when it comes to the pacing, to the structure, to how they build tension, there are lessons for everybody to learn there. These brilliant boys' own stories. I, I really want it to come back. I really want these to, to really strike home and for people to start reading these high-octane thrillers. And I wonder as well, you know, just when you were, you were describing uh, Running Blind about the character who just relocates to the Highlands, but then is dragged back to his old life, that you're thinking, is that going to happen to me one day? God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, honestly, it's a terrific book. I urge anybody who wants to write a thriller to go back and, and read it. Well, 
you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Neil Lancaster. And Neil, we are on to book three, which is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. You kind of just touched on it, uh, Greg Hurwitz. And the book that you've chosen is Orphan X, which is the first book in a, in a thriller series of novels. Yeah, these I read. I think these are one of the, there was a couple of, I, I was doing an awful lot of uh, reading audio books coming up here with long dog walks and uh, you know plenty of time out there go out for a couple of hours a day and I was reading a, an awful lot of audiobooks and I don't even know I think I just happened upon it Orphan X as a suggested read for me on Audible so I thought well, that's worth a look the concept of it is the protagonist in this is a guy called Evan Smoke S-M-O-A-K who uh, who was as an orphan he was taken on by a sort of a black operation in the United States, some deep, dark black funds budget to prepare the ultimate fighting and killing machine to do these dark and dirty jobs for the US government. And Evan was taken from his foster home and put into this program, this long program of training him with his mentor, Jack. And he was trained to be the ultimate warrior and to go and do the dirty work wherever in the world for the US government. And there were a number of people in this orphan program, obviously orphan A, orphan B, or, and Evan Smoke was orphan X. And it's unbelievably gripping. I was dragged immediately into this story and I just, I couldn't consume it fast enough. And what happens to Evan is that he becomes disillusioned a number of years after all his training and he knows what he's doing is wrong. And he's fundamentally a good person and he breaks away. He's financially set for life because of all the black funds he's managed to siphon off. He is an expert computer hacker. He's a super fighter. He manages to maintain these enormous amounts of cover stories all over. He's got cover houses. He's got different addresses everywhere, all backstopped. He can't be traced. The government can't find him. The government want him dead. The other remaining orphans are out to kill him. He has one aim in his life now, which is to redress the bad things he's done by doing good things. He has a phone, the one phone, his Rome zone phone. The number is given out by the last person who he, he did a good favor for. So it will be people at their wits end. They have nowhere to turn. They will phone Evan Smoke's number. Evan will sort their problem out for them. Their obligation now is to pass that phone number on to one person and one person only who needs him. But they've got to be really serious. And that's how he goes. So he's only got one operation on at any one time. I'm describing it really badly, but this is the most exciting thriller series out there, as far as I'm concerned. Incredibly fast-paced. The character is he's incredibly drawn. Greg Hurwitz is a, a super thriller writer. I mean, he's written a, a load of standalones as well, which are all really, really good. I've read the lot. But Orphan X is just compelling. It's impossible to put down. They're beautifully written, but again, no wasted words. The character is just irresistible. Um, you know, he's a, a vodka aficionado. And it makes me want to go and buy posh vodka. I don't really like vodka, but it makes me want to go and buy posh vodka. I can't say enough good things about it. It's just completely tremendous. And it's one of those books that I'll pre-order as soon as it goes on. I don't even want to know. I don't even care what the blurb is. I won't even read it. I'll just pre-order it. And I can't wait for it to appear on my phone. And the dog will get loads of long walks because it's just so exciting. It's funny, I wonder... When somebody like him, we were talking about it earlier on about how if you can get a character that you that you can run with, it's 
you know, people engage with, and then there's, you know, there's a second book and there's a third book, and if people are engaged in the character, as you say, it doesn't matter what the story is because you've already bought into who he is and what he's doing. Again, he's now got, I think, about five or six of, of these books, but the kind of the premise of that character means it's the world's his oyster, as it were, in terms of storylines and where he can go and where he can take them. Quite literally, it's there are no boundaries to where Greg can take these um, these stories, and people will buy them because it's like in the same way that Reacher is sold so well, Lee Child sold so well with Reacher is because people go back for Jack Reacher. You know, he's such a great character. The hook on it is just so amazing. You know, the writing is good, but it's the character that keeps people going back, and that's why we like series because people go back. They, like I say, no one's going to care what the story is for the next Orphan X book. They're just going to buy it because they want to read about Orphan X. It's just, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. It's why we love thrillers. It's why we like series, because we go back for these characters. Also, I mean, I think, because what I love about, you know, when you mentioned Reacher, when you read that first Reacher book, I think it's Killing Floor, and, and, and that's you. Once you've read that, you're going to devour the series because he's such a brilliant character that, that Ali Child has invented. And I'm guessing with this one as well that the premise, well, it's it's a thriller, but in, in your head, probably as a reader, you're thinking, yeah, I could, that, could, that could have happened, that could be happening because you've got so little knowledge of what's happening in that wider world, that, that world that governments occupy. I mean, he, he's a good person, you know. He's done some terrible things in his time, but he's a good person and he wants to make amends. He lives to a very, very strong code. He has this very strong code that his handler gave him. You know, his handler was like a father figure to him because he took him from a child and brought him through this process. And he has simple things in his code. Like one of them is how you do anything is how you do everything. So it's about everything you must do. It must be perfect. And it just resonates so hard with me. And it just, this code, and I mean, I've nicked the code thing. Because Novak lives by a code, because you know, because of not what Novak saw as, as a child with his family being with his father being murdered, has left really a big mark on him. He, he has a problem with empathy, but his foster father, because he was brought up by a loving foster family, has left him with his own very simple code about doing the right thing. And yeah, that's pretty much nicked off Greg Hurwitz, but just simplified down to suit my purposes. And I like that that a flawed character can be a good person if they live to a good code. And, and, and I thought that was a really attractive idea. And I, I think it continues. This is why, I mean, Greg will sell will be a bestseller because of the character. But I know the book's going to be good because he's a genius writer as well. Because I wasn't surprised when I was just reading up on it that I think it had been optioned as a film because even just in that, the description you're given, the kind of basic premise of who he is, what his background is and what he does now, that just jumps out. It's so cinematic. But it was interesting that the film's not yet been made. I think there's still, I don't know if somebody's got the rights now or Warner Brothers gave up the rights, but I, it just seems to me it, it lends itself to not only just one film, but almost like a, a franchise with that character. I, it, you know, it could easily be, I think it would transpose well either to film or to a, a Netflix-type arrangement. If you think of the, the big successful Netflix shows, you know, you're 24 and not that was Netflix, but that's sort of the box set. It could be great, an amazing box set series because each book would probably fit nicely into six episodes. Um, or it could be a great big Hollywood, but I suspect it would be hugely expensive to make because of the nature of it, because of the international nature of it, because of how it crosses America. It's very, very cinematic. I suspect it'd be really expensive. 
And this is the way it seems to be with books. Many books get optioned, not that many get made into films or TV series. But I'd be surprised if this one doesn't. I suspect it will. Well, I think the next one, I think it's called The Prodigal Son, that's due out early 2021. So I've, I've, got, I've got it on pre-order. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be a good start to your new year then. I mean, in terms of, you, you, you mentioned the fact that you listen to these books in audio. I've, it's something I've never really got into as yet, as audio books. I've, I've spoken on the podcast before. A few guys I work with are big on audio books and just the kind of lifestyles they lead and long car journeys, for example. They, they really love them. I'm still very, quite old-fashioned in terms of the, the physical book. But how, how have you enjoyed, just as you say, you've got long walks up in the highlands. Does that help you, actually, just listening to the book? I absolutely love them. I, I love them. And if it's, if it's done well, I think it can enhance a book. But again, it's a personal preference. But yeah, I really like audiobooks. And because I do, do lots of dog walking or even if I'm just mooching around the garden or, you know, doing housework, whatever it is, I'm, I love it if I've got, got a book going on. And, you know, it, it's just a great way of consuming books. And it's, you know, it's increasing. It's it's lucrative now and there are many authors and publishing houses making as much money from audible now and audiobooks as they are from printed books so this is it's rising exponentially the you know the consumption of audiobooks so yeah you have to be involved in it it's great i love it and particularly like you say car journeys i don't even mind i don't even fear a car journey now you know get me to drive a long way away i'm happy because i'm just sitting i'll sit for hours and listen to a book my personal preference is the, the physical book, but I, ultimately, if people are reading an ebook or they're listening to a book, they'll ever, as long as people are reading, however they consume that. And I think audiobooks, you know, as you say, they're on the rise. I think maybe just increasingly with the kind of life that people lead and the, the kind of world we live in, that you can see why they're becoming more popular. But as long as people are consuming literature, that's the main thing. I agree. I agree. Well, you know, despite the pandemic, obviously bookshops have taken an absolute smashing, but reading is going up. Because it's escapism. And if ever we needed escapism, it's right here, right now, in the, you know, with a pandemic looming around us. Uh, escapism is, is massive. And I think, I mean, Bloomsbury recently recorded a large surge in profits. So I, I, I think the future is mixed. Uh, I think it's good for writing and stories. Uh, I don't think that's going to go down in any way, shape or form. Physical bookshops are going to have a hard time over the next, I don't know, however long it takes, six months, a year. Uh, before people start to get confidence, go back out into bookshops. But, you know, online consumption of books, books by e-readers, books through Audible and audiobooks, they're all going up really, really well. More people reading, what, however they choose to consume the book, is great by me. And we're talking about, uh, you know, a love of books and a love of reading. It doesn't quite take me seamlessly on to my next question, which then goes from books that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And the book that you've chosen is Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Right. Now, this is nothing to do with Stephen King. It's nothing to do with his writing. I've read all of that particular genre of his, of his books. I've read most of his books, probably, and I've loved them deeply and dearly. Pet Cemetery scared me to my core. And I found the subject matter disturbing to a degree that I just don't want to read it again. I'm sure most people listening in probably have read it. The concept of a young child being killed in a road accident and being buried in this horrifically scary pet cemetery that brings either the whatever's buried there back to life as a zombie. It chilled me to my very marrow. And I don't even like thinking about it, actually. 
It is awful. It's brilliantly written and most people love it. I can't, I hate it. <laughs> but you know, it's really interesting that you should say that because, when I, again, when I was just doing a wee bit of, kind of research on it, partly Stephen King says that's the novel which genuinely scared him the most out of it's, all his books. Stephen King knows how to push buttons. He'll go places that many people won't. One of the things that I got advised on is never harm an animal. He didn't shy away from that. You know, you had the one in, the, I think it's the dead zone, isn't it? Where, what was his name? Was it Greg Stilson? Greg Stilson, the guy to be president. Might, be, might have that wrong. Again, a really good book, The Dead Zone. I loved it. But he kicks a dog to death. Now, cool, that's risky. Any books where, where an animal gets harmed, it's risky. So um, Stephen King will go places that other people won't. And he will, he will go to areas of pushing readers' buttons that many won't have the courage to do. And he takes risks. But he's Stephen King. He can afford to. And I accept Pet Cemetery is a great book. I just don't want to read it again. It's like Joker. You know the film Joker? Brilliant. Genius work of masterpiece. I don't want to see it again. It was too disturbing. So it's that. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant book, but I just, nah. My natural inclination is just to shy away from books where I think would, would kind of scare or unnerve me. I mean, the Stephen King books I've read at The Stand and Under the Dome, which are more kind of dystopian, fantastic. Yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. You know, rather than outright either horror or, or, or terrifying. So I haven't actually read Pet Cemetery and... Uh, I wouldn't. Your, your words and Stephen King's words, I don't think I ever will. <laughs> I mean, I've loved loads of his books. I thought, you know, Christine was a masterpiece. Carrie was brilliant. Of course, The Shining. Yeah, so there's loads of his books I've loved. And they're horrible books in terms of, you know, the violence and death and scary stuff. It's just Pet Cemetery pushed my buttons too far. It's funny, the best, my favourite Stephen King book is actually the Stephen King on writing, uh, which I think is just absolutely brilliant. It's just fascinating just to listen to him or to read him, you know, the whole kind of process and how he went about it. Obviously, in the background of he, he ended up finishing the book, having just survived a, you know, an awful accident where he was knocked down, nearly killed. But just some of the advice he gives you is just absolutely brilliant. Everyone who wants to be a writer should have a copy of that. You know, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's, it's you know, it's... it's a good read. There are some very, very, very simple lessons to take away from there. I, you know, I can remember one of his bits of advice on that was around a protagonist's name. And he, wrote, he worked out that if he, it was a really long name. And he worked out that if he shortened the name, the book would be a heap of pages shorter. Which, you know, where many publishers want word count to hit certain levels because of print costs... And he worked out that it would be really simple to save a number of pages just by shortening a name. I thought, that's quite smart, actually. Just something simple like that can make you think about it. I think as well, as you mentioned, the fact about how successful he's been. And, you know, when somebody like him is given advice, but he's got the benefit of all these successful books and, and having done so well, you have to kind of listen to what he's saying. Of course you do. Of course you do. And, he, you know, he's cross genres and he's been successful in everything he does. So... Yeah, you, you have to listen to Stephen King. That book is a must for anyone who wants to be an author. I'm taking you on now to the fifth and final question of the podcast, and that is uh, a book that you're reading now, and the book that you've chosen is a book called Lie Beside Me by Geetha Lodge, which, am I right in saying it's not actually coming out until early next year? One of the fortunate things and one of the bonuses when you become an author is that uh, after a while, people start asking you to read books before they're published. I've read a few of those and it's a real privilege to be able to get them and, you know, tell people what you think. Now this one, Lie Beside Me, is psychological thriller, stroke police procedural. 
the hook is amazing. I'm, I'm, I haven't read a huge amount of it. Um, I'm only, what am I, I'm sort of, you know, about a quarter of the way through. I'll read you the hook and the blurb. You wake up, your head is pounding, your mouth is dry and you can't remember a thing. All you know is that the man in your bed is not your husband and he isn't breathing. Oh, I think that's a really good hook and it makes you want to dive in. And I have dived in and it is absolutely terrific. Uh, I'm really having to sort of step away from it once or twice because I've got other things I need to be doing. But um, yeah, an absolute blast of a book. So I urge anyone listening to get out there and pre-order it. Githa's a fantastic author. Um, she's writing with um, Penguin. And yeah, this is a super book. I really do encourage anyone to, to get it read because it's, uh, when it comes out, it's, it's, a, it's a cracking book. Some people may be familiar with her name, but again, I think her first novel was selected by the Richard and Judy Book Club, which obviously gives any author a real boost in terms of the profile and the exposure. And I'm not, I think that's the character that's in Lie Beside Me first appears in this first book, which is called She Lies in Wait. So she's obviously been identified as you know someone who's got real talent in that in that world. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I think she she certainly has talent. That's for sure. And uh, I think we're going to see plenty more from Githa. And this is, I haven't read the first one, but once I've done this one, I think that's going to be way up my list of uh, another one to read. So yeah, really, really good. Really, really good writer. So I do encourage everyone to, to have a look at these uh, Githa's books. I mean, have you always got like books on the go in terms of either the physical book or, as you mentioned already, you, you listen to quite a lot of books? Yeah, I've always got, I'm, I've got two books on the go at any one time. I'm list- I've got one on audio, which I say is Charles Cummings's Box 88 at the moment, which is an absolutely mesmeric espionage thriller. I love it. And uh, I've got Githa's Lie Beside Me on the go as well. So, yeah, I, I do have a, a bit of a TBR pile. Uh, most authors do. Uh, it's just time, you know, like I say, it's time. I was talking to somebody recently who, in terms of their writing, that quite often when they were really focused in on what they were writing, they took a step back from like, particularly fiction, reading. So they could focus their kind of brain in terms of the fiction on what they were writing. And any books that they were reading would be like non-fiction books. So it was a total escape. Sometimes when you're really in the thick of it, of writing and trying to get a decent word count and the story is moving, reading for pleasure can, for me, be a little tricky because my mind wanders onto what I'm currently currently writing. So it can be tricky, but obviously you've got to read. You know, to be a writer, you have to read and you have to read widely. I don't think you can improve as a writer unless you read uh, and you read people who are better than you. You know, that's what I'm doing now. I'm thinking, and I keep reading books. And I'm thinking this person, this is better than I'm better. I'm not as good as this. I need, need to up my game. And you take some of the lessons that, that, that you see in some of these books and they can be really small things, really small things. Somebody made a really good point when we were talking about this the other day, that one word can change how you feel about a page. Someone gave the example of Jack Reacher when he's in a cafe or a diner, as they would say, and he was paying the waitress. People would say he, you know, most people would say he slid a $10 bill under an ashtray or put a $10 bill. But the child said he jammed it underneath the ashtray. Now that changes things slightly, but it does give you an insight into uh, Lee Child's character and Lee Child's Jack Reacher character. He jammed it underneath. So one word makes all the difference. And you only get to these things by reading other people's work. Um, another really great author, Jane Casey, who writes the Maeve Kerrigan series, describes some police officers leaning on a doorbell. Again, that gives this feeling of weariness of 
cops on a long inquiry. They wearily, you know, leaned. But one word, no description, just the change of a word from pressed to leaned changes the feel of that passage. It's so clever. I'd never realised it. It was, it was somebody else who actually drew that to my attention. And uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm trying to think, can I change this word for another word that might just help with that feeling that is um, quite hard to pin down? And it might be subliminal, but you will get the feeling of it as opposed to just the direct, you know, reading. Oh, he, he pressed the doorbell. They leaned against the doorbell. It's a different feeling. I think it's incredibly clever. I suppose a lot of that would come in the, the editing process, that once you've got that first draft down, then you go back in and let's say that's when your mind's maybe thinking, how do I improve this? How do I up my game in this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every chapter you write, you should be thinking, does this move the story along? Every time you look, you think, would another word, word work better in that particular place? It is hard. It is hard. And it, I, you know, I hope I'm getting better. I hope I'm getting, I'm able to use less words to achieve the same result now. And you know, certainly with thrillers, that's what I need to be doing. You know, you don't want to be having large tracks of lovely description when really what you want is the pages to keep turning. You, may, you mentioned right at the very start in terms of you'd written something completely different and that's off now out into the world looking for a home. I take it, you know, once that is out there, you're then working on something else. You're always writing something. Yeah, I've always, I'm always thinking about the next thing. I'm actually, I've had a couple of weeks off uh, because, you know, I just needed a bit of headspace and to, just to do some other things. And, you know, kids have been off school, so I spent some time with the, with the family and things. But I'm always thinking about the next thing. And I, I have started the follow-up to the book that's out in the world at the moment, but more feeling my way into it. I, can't, I don't plan, again, I write, you know, I, I, I do write little notes to myself on Post-its and I jam them on the wall in my office and so I can look up and think, yeah, I'll write, you know, things I might want to, include uh so i'm feeling my way into that book which is what i tend to do for the first third of a, of a book i tend to write my way into it and then i tend to pick up speed as as i move through so yeah i'm always thinking about the next thing but that's you know if hopefully touchwood you know we find a, a good home for this this new thing i'm gonna have to probably get my act together and get writing quickly but that's that's obviously that's that's a good position to be in i suppose Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, Neil, we have just about come to the end of the podcast. If anybody wants to just check out Neil's book choices, you can check out my website, www.paulcuddehy.com. Every guest in the podcast has their own page, and I just list the books that they have chosen for each of the categories. But it's been really good uh, talking to you today, Neil, just about some of your favourite and lots of favourite books. Thanks, it's been, uh, it's been great fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at PaulCuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.